Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner and the head of the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Danielle Vincent. Hi, Danny. Hi, Alan. And it gives us great pleasure to have as our guest today, Adrian Goldberg. Hi, Adrian. Hello, Alan. Nice to meet you. Hi, Danny, as well. If people haven't heard of me in the past, they should, of course. I used to present a show on the BBC, Radio 5 Live, called 5 Live Investigates for a decade. That was taken off air in 2019. Prior to that, I'd worked for four years as a reporter on Watchdog on BBC One in Anne Robinson's time on Watchdog and also when Nikki Campbell was presenting the show. So I've got a pretty broad experience of investigative journalism and now I present and produce the Byline Times podcast which kind of takes a a progressive alternative look at the news than you might see compared to mainstream media. Thank you very much Adrian, a fabulous introduction, saved me a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway so Danny came up with the idea of having you on to talk about Celtic, Celtic Football Club and that's because Football and the tragedy of sexual abuse of youngsters in football has been very much in the news over um, recent days and recent weeks. And we thought, or or rather give credit to Danny, Danny thought it would be a good idea to talk to you about Celtic Football Club. So for our listeners who are perhaps not completely au fait with Celtic and what's been happening at Celtic, perhaps you can give us a little bit of the background. Yeah, and this is really interesting. And the the film that I've made, the documentary with my director friend Lawrence Leonard, is actually called the Celtic Boys Club Scandal. Now, part of the story really is that Celtic Football Club, although it was happy to use Celtic Boys Club as a kind of feeder club and had very close relationships with Celtic Boys Club for many years has denied any formal connection between itself and Celtic Boys Club. But Celtic Boys Club was founded in the mid-60s by a convicted abuser, a now convicted abuser called Jim Torbett. What's interesting about Torbett's story is, is tragically he abused boys. There were stories about him circulating. It was suggested that the Celtic manager at the time, Celtic's greatest manager, Jock Steen, having heard the rumours, kicked him out of the club. But when Steen then left Celtic, he later became the manager of Leeds United briefly and then Scotland, Jim Torbett was welcomed back at Celtic Boys Club. But he also had connections with Celtic Football Club. So survivors tell me that Match tickets were given sometimes to the youngsters, trips to the director's box, that kind of thing. So Torbit is at the the start and at the centre of a web of paedophile activity around Celtic Boys Club. But the individuals who have been convicted of abuse were sometimes also connected to Celtic Football Club or in some case 
some cases only connected to Celtic Football Club. The football club has maintained for many years that it is in legal terms a separate entity from Celtic Boys Club. So although they've expressed sympathy, sorrow for what happened at Celtic Boys Club, the contention I make in the film is that they're essentially saying we're very sorry but it's nothing to do with us, Governor. Yeah. What we try to explore in the film are the links, and certainly the survivors and victims' families tell us that when they or their loved ones were playing for Celtic Boys Club, they believed that it was part of Celtic Football Club. And there's much evidence to show very, very, very close links between the Boys Club and Celtic Football Club. Right, several issues and questions that flow from that intro. Number one is, is this the fact that an abuser, a convicted abuser, is able to apparently walk back in? Well, I should stress there, Alan, it was he hadn't been convicted at that time. So Jim Torbett's first conviction didn't come until 1998. But there were rumours about him, very strong rumours about him when he was allowed back into the club. The story goes that this guy, Jim Torbett, had been kicked out of the club because there were serious suspicions about his activities, but he was then allowed back back into the football club once Jockstein had left, but he hadn't been convicted at that point. Okay, very important point. But for me, it raises this issue of why is it that apparently those in authority turn a blind eye? Why is it that, you know, it is that people in position of authority don't want to see, don't want to hear what is right in front of them, what is being said? I think that's an issue that is still very pertinent in 2021. Absolutely. And I think in the film, the incidents in which people had good grounds for suspicion, but did nothing in terms of reporting it to the police, they're manifold. We report an incident when a coach was alleged to have abused a youngster on a trip to North America in 1991. A meeting was held involving a Celtic football club director, even though this was Celtic Boys Club. Again, just emphasising the closeness of the relationship between the two. Apparently, the victim's family did not want to make a fuss. And so the coach who was involved in that alleged episode of abuse was allowed to simply leave the club and walk away, citing pressures of work. I spoke to Lou Macari, former Celtic player. He said to me that, and he's written about this in his autobiography as well, that there were all kinds of rumours of abuse going on at Celtic. And when a youngster came to him, he said that he felt that he had no mechanism within the football club with which to deal with it. And he was the manager of Celtic FC rather than Celtic Boys Club. So felt to an extent it was somebody else's responsibility. But again, the opportunity there to report to the police was missed. And all through the film and all through this very sad history, there were suspicions of abuse, there were reports of abuse. All too often, those suspicions were not reported to the police. What the film ends up making is a very passionate call for the introduction of a law on mandatory reporting. And Tom Perry, who you may have come across in your work, I'm not sure, but he runs an organisation called Mandate Now. He's a survivor of abuse himself. And what we're trying to do in the film is perhaps go further than some of the programmes that have been on the BBC and actually campaign for this and say, had these well-grounded suspicions of abuse 
and suspicions which in many cases we now know were based on genuine abuse had there been a mandatory reporting responsibility then these offenders could have been brought to book much sooner and young people could have been saved from having their yeah. lives ruined you know it's mandatory reporting if it was properly introduced would mean that any adult whether it's in a football club or youth club whatever it happens to be if they have that suspicion or that suspicion is brought to them they are legally obliged to report it you know they discharge their responsibility by going to the police or to social services or to the safeguarding officer in their club or their organization and like you're saying you know what was experienced at Celtic and many other football clubs would have been avoided so much misery and pain and trouble would have been avoided yeah, we speak to a, a psychologist who actually gave evidence in one of Jim Torbett's trials, a, a guy called Dr. John Marshall. And he talks about how this kind of abuse flourishes in institutions where the abuser has power, has authority. And for a young person to come forward, for example, and say, I'm being abused by this individual, they risk their whole football career their football career is put in jeopardy so there's this kind of veil of secrecy because the young people don't want to speak out the parent may have suspicions but the parent may not want to speak out and other coaches and other employees at the club or in any other institution may fear speaking out because we're talking very often about powerful people within the institution if you speak out against them then it's possible that you as the whistleblower will lose your job yeah. well if you have mandatory reporting Instead of the onus being on the individual to perhaps go against the grain of the organisation, the institution that they work for, it means that the onus is on them to report it to the police. But nobody can really sanction them for that because that is a legal responsibility upon them. And it just kind of shifts the balance of power in these these relationships between abuser and abused. And what did you find about the inability to report? the inability to come forward. You know, we're all familiar with fear or what is going to happen if I do say anything. But was there anything, you know, particularly different about Celtic? I think there was, yes. And I think there is evidence of an institutional cover-up over many years. We identified two directors of Celtic Football Club who had commercial business relationships with Jim Torbett. One of them, Kevin Kelly, who was a, a former chairman of Celtic Football Club, had a, an involvement in a business that Torbett ran called the Trophy Centre. He also had involvement in three other businesses that Torbett ran. Now, Kelly, when he's been questioned by journalists, says he has no recollection of these sad events of the past. But in 1986, again, we evidence this in the film, Celtic's directors, of which he was one, launch an investigation into allegations of abuse at Celtic Boys Club. This, of course, cuts again, cuts across the idea that they were a separate entity, because why would a football club do an investigation into allegations relating to Celtic Boys Club unless they were, at some level, deeply linked? Now, this investigation in 1986, when Kelly was a director, was reported in Celtic's weekly newspaper, the Celtic View, described the rumours as scurrilous and said that if anybody else raises these allegations in public, the coaches at Celtic Boys Club will take action 
to clear their name. So there was this business relationship between Kevin Kelly and Jim Torbett, Jack McGinn, another former Celtic chairman, also had a commercial business relationship with Jim Torbett. Again, McGinn says that had he known of, of any of these allegations, then he would certainly have reported them to the police. But the evidence suggests that there were very deep suspicions about Jim Torbett and others around Celtic Boys Club and Celtic Park that were not reported to the police. So I think there is a call really here for, for a deeper investigation into this, because certainly what we found was was very disturbing and very unsettling. One of the things that I wanted to highlight in, when we spoke to you is that obviously in respect of the FA in England, they opened this investigation and, you know, some of the survivors have been waiting years. I think their report was commissioned in 2016. And I think your documentary, you know, highlights that the FA in Scotland has perhaps not done as, as much. And the Scottish FA themselves in their own report acknowledge failures, as indeed did the English Football Association. So I think there is a there has been a safeguarding issue across football as a whole. I think both organisations have been keen to stress that that's the Scottish FA and the English FA have been keen to stress that these were historical failings and that safeguarding is much tighter now. And we know that, sadly, there is no law in the world that you can introduce, no guideline that you can introduce that will stop an abuser or will stop somebody trying to abuse children. But this, again, comes to where mandatory reporting, I think, is such a key issue to arise from this film. Mandatory reporting was not recommended in the FA's report. They had a number of recommendations, but they, the report actually addressed the issue of mandatory reporting, but then said but this is not just an issue for football. So we'll hand that responsibility over to somebody else. I, I thought that was the FA's report. It was, it was Sir Clive Sheldon QC. I, I, I felt that was shirking its responsibility because if Sheldon had believed that mandatory reporting could help young people, then I think he should have said so. Likewise, the Scottish FA report made more than 90 recommendations, not one of those was for mandatory reporting. So I think both football associations have made mistakes in the past, which they've acknowledged. They've improved safeguarding no end. I think that has to be acknowledged too. And they've made guidelines and recommendations to prevent abuse going forward. But the key one, <laughs> neither of them is backing. And I, I just don't understand why there's this reluctance to engage with mandatory reporting. As I say, nobody has any illusions that this will stop offending, but it will, I think, reduce offending and make it much easier to bring culprits to justice. Yeah, I think the subliminal message is that, oh, mandatory reporting, it, you know, it actually means that the buck actually stops on somebody's desk. <laughs> well, yes, and uh, somebody made uh, a comment to me in another context recently, the former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England, actually, Nazir Afzal, was talking about, in another context, but just talking about all these recommendations, all these reports, all these reviews that are made. Obviously, they're well-meaning and they have the weight of evidence behind them, but mandatory reporting is one simple law that could be introduced to at least show that offending is not tolerated in society and that there is an onus on adults, if they see it, if they suspect it, to, to do something. There's, there's a particular Scottish dimension I should point out to this story as well, though, Alan and Danny, in that 
we tried to contact the Scottish Justice Secretary, Hamza Yousaf, for an interview. Strangely to me, the Scottish FA was given the task of investigating historic child abuse, even though the Scottish Parliament is itself investigating child abuse in its broadest sense. Yeah. But they devolved the issue of football to the Scottish FA. Now, you know, they're essentially they're a football authority. And so they put together a good report, which is well evidenced and well researched, although some of the survivors have made, I think, justified criticisms of it. But, you know, it's kind of well-meaning and coming from a good place. But why was football kind of siphoned off from the rest of mm-hmm. child abuse? It's all child abuse and it's all institutional child abuse. We tried to engage with Umzi Yusuf, the, the Scottish Justice Secretary. He's a well-known Celtic supporter. <laughs> I don't know if that had anything to do with it. We pointed out to him that our film was really about an issue of justice, not about football, and that there is this call for mandatory reporting. But all we got was deflection, a statement which didn't address the issues that we made. Very disappointing, really, because ultimately this is about justice. It isn't about football. Do you think there's pressure, whether it's direct or indirect pressure, being applied in respect of some of these issues? What I certainly became very aware of, I was aware of it a bit before, and I became really, really aware of it in this case, is how rife sectarianism is in the west of Scotland. That's kind of a subplot to this story. And that sectarianism is played out through affinity to Celtic and Rangers. Yeah. And... If people don't understand that, it's it's worth finding out more. But essentially, Celtic are very loosely identified as the club of the Irish Catholic mm. population in Glasgow in the west of Scotland and have an affiliation politically with the SNP, the ruling party in, in Scotland. Rangers are associated with unionism, with Protestantism. Now, these are very broad brushstrokes, but these issues are real in the west of Scotland and play out in other areas other than just football. And we got accused because we crowdfunded, and there's no denying a lot of Rangers fans did back our crowdfunder. We were accused of weaponising sectarian bigotry. I should say we also had support from some Celtic supporters, although they were less keen to be identified with it publicly because they felt that they would get criticism for that. But for me, this isn't about choosing one side or the other. It's about seeing a case where there appears to have been an institutional cover-up over many decades. Rangers themselves had issues with child abuse. Nobody could sensibly deny that. But the club, which has had the greatest number of offenders associated with it, and the appearance of an institutional cover-up, is Celtic. And, you know, it's a false equivalence. It's whataboutery to talk about Rangers in that context, because Celtic, I think, has had a a particular problem that needs to be addressed. So objectivity sort of goes out the window in a way. Well, I think, yeah, I think that if you, the nature of Scottish politics and Scottish life is that if you attack one or other of those two great footballing institutions, there is a kind of demand for an equivalence. Yes. And it's it's like, well, these things are not always equivalent. Sometimes one institution fares worse or performs worse than the other. And that's our that's our conclusion in this case about Celtic. But it you know, it is a particular hornet's nest that mm. that has made doing this film quite problematic and means I think I think there's also a pressure there politically. I think it gets bound up in other other issues in in Scottish life which make it difficult sometimes for survivors to come forward or for people to speak out. 
So going ahead, looking forward, perhaps there's a need for this to be looked at from a UK perspective rather than a provincial one or semi-national one, whatever terminology would you want to use, you know, because if objectively, if being objective is sacrificed because of these underlying concerns and issues, we're not necessarily going to learn and history unfortunately ends up repeating itself down the road. Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is that, you know, we we live in a United Kingdom now, which has various levels of devolution. And I I don't think one film is going to change all that. But I think that, and, and, you know, there are many upsides to devolution. What I would say is that I've not heard, whether it's in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, I've not heard a good argument against mandatory reporting. Now, each, each of these jurisdictions could choose to take to themselves a law, as I understand it, of mandatory reporting. Certainly England could and certainly Scotland could, and neither jurisdiction has chosen to do that. Please tell us why. Why is that? Because every day that there isn't a law of mandatory reporting on the statute books, young people are being placed in danger and left in danger. That's right. For me, it has two dimensions to it. Number one is the practical one. You know, a concern has been raised. Therefore, it's your job to do something about it. And number two, it sends that message. You know, it's not somebody else's problem. Yes. And I think it says if you're within an institution and at the moment there is a danger of going against the institution by blowing the whistle on somebody about whom there are reasonable suspicions, then you could potentially pay with your job. If it is law that you must report and somebody higher up the chain comes to you and says, oh, well, why did you do that? I had no choice. Mm. It is the law. It is mandatory reporting. You're not asking me to break the law, are you? So it becomes much harder for this veil of secrecy to cloak these appalling incidents and much harder for people up the chain who may not be directly involved, but who want to protect the brand, who want to protect the reputation of the institution. It becomes much harder for them to try and silence whistleblowers. Yes, I think you're absolutely right on that. You know, it may be there is some movement at the Westminster Parliament. I hope I'm not being rose-tinted about this because it is now sort of being accepted that positions of trust. So, you know, where adults have sexual relationships with 16, 17-year-olds, some have been able to escape the criminal law because, you know, football coaches or whatever not necessarily seen in the same light as a teacher. And um, that loophole hopefully is going to be closed so that, you know, a football coach or, you know, a trainer or whatever is going to be treated in the same way as a teacher. So they decide to abuse the position that they're in and have a so-called sexual relationship with one of the youngsters who happens to be 16 or 17. That will become a criminal offence. That is hopefully going to be on the statute book sooner rather than later. So maybe maybe there's a, a sea change out there. But, you know, there does seem to be this sort of resistance to mandatory reporting, which is nonsensical. My own view is it's because the concern is it places a legal responsibility on all sorts of individuals. And I don't see what the problem is with that myself. No, I can't either. It just seems just utterly baffling. Okay, before we wrap up, Adrian, Danny, any further thoughts or or comments for our listeners? From my point of view, I, I think it's just brilliant that 
you know, all of these people have come forward now and, you know, shown the strength and courage to, you know, after decades of not telling anyone, they've come forward so that, you know, hopefully this will support anybody out there that's listening to this podcast or, you know, has suffered in silence for a long time that they may get the strength to come forward. And even if it's just to get, you know, the help they need or, you know, documentaries that Adrian are doing in, in different people, it's just raising that awareness that hopefully, you know, as you say, history won't repeat. And there is anyone that's there suffering know that there's a number of organisations that will assist that, as we always do, we will tag in the blog that goes with this podcast. Good. Now, listen, it's been a pleasure to speak about it. People can go and see the film on YouTube for nothing, just called The Celtic Boys Scandal. About over 50,000 views in a couple of weeks since the film was released, which is phenomenal. We had no idea we'd get anything like that amount of audience. Publicity has been almost exclusively off our own bat through social media because of that sectarian issue that there is in Scotland. So newspapers apart from the Glasgow Times, which did run an article, newspapers are wary of publicising this film for being seen to side with one group or the other. All I'd say on that is that this is a story that is much more important than any one football club or the injured feelings of the supporters of any one football club. This is about victims of abuse, it's about survivors, and it is about getting justice, and it's about finding out what has gone wrong over so many decades that has allowed an institutional cover-up. And I would say that whoever you support as a football team, even if you hate football, that should really concern you. And that should be a matter of real public interest. Adrian, thank you very much. Really interesting. I think we could talk for ages on all of this, but I think our listeners will be very appreciative (laughs) of your time. So thank you very much. And as always, listeners, if you have any thoughts or comments about this podcast or any of our podcasts, then please do get in touch. Thank you, Danny. And once again, thank you, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.